Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. And this is part two of Who's Magic Flute? And so we're going to pick it up where we left off. At the beginning of the scene, as we saw, the priest asked Tamino, and consequently us as spectators, to pay attention to the way we use language and to begin to question rather than accept blithely as truth that we have seen and heard thus far in the opera. At the end of the scene, however, this process of reflection culminates in the music of the flute, which has such an overpowering effect on Tamino that it seems to preclude re further reflection. Instead of rethinking his quest in light of the priest's warning, Tamino blindly places his faith in the music of the magic flute to guide him where he needs to go. We as spectators may well do the same. If we were to stop here in our quest to understand whose magic flute, we might conclude that the magic flute is itself the source of its own power that it has its own independent agency. For Jean Starobinsky, Tamino's flute is not a mere resource at his disposal, it is power itself, a lenient, non-violent power of which Tamino is but the officiant, and by which he lets himself be guided. This power is certainly evident at the end of the opera, when the music of the magic flute, this time a sparely orchestrated march, enables Tamino and Pamina to withstand their trials by fire and water. Again, Starobinsky, what the ultimate trial represents is not only the triumph of love, it is the triumph of music and musicians. But does this magic flute march really represent a musical triumph? As musicologist Carolyn Abat notes, it is odd and mechanical. For a march, moreover, music designed to accompany people as they move forward, this piece is rather static, a quality reinforced by the sparse accompaniment as well as the breathy quality of the flute line. Only when the flute ceases playing and the violins enter with a sequence of 16th notes, measures 371 to 77, do we sense that Tamino and Pamina are moving or marching forward. The flute's melody betrays none of the anxiety, excitement, or even potential peril of the perilous journey through fire and water. We don't get any musical indication of danger or, for that matter, any musical differentiation at all between the trial by fire and the trial by water. The music simply repeats. If this is a near-death experience for the couple, we certainly don't hear it. We know, however, that it is a near-death experience. After Pamina explains the flute's origin to Tamino and indicates that it will lead them through the trials, the couple sings, will wander through the power of tone cheerfully through the gloomy night of death. The power of the magic flute sound will lead them cheerfully through death's gloomy night. Instead of the gloom of the night or death, in other words, they will experience the cheerfulness of the power of sound. Here again, as with the flute's previous solo piece at the end of the recitative, the magic flute's music functions as a substitute for what is otherwise inexpressible in words, this time the near-death experience of the trials. We hear the flute music of the final trial through fire and water, but we do not experience that trial ourselves, nor are we privy to Tamino's and Pamina's reflections on it. Music stands in for an experience that is inaccessible to us and perhaps inexpressible to them. As was also the case in the earlier piece, the music seems to belie what it is supposed to express, or at least what we might expect it to express. 
be it Tamino's heartfelt gratitude when he learns Pamina is still alive, his fear when he faces the deathly trials, or his triumphant exultation when he survives him, especially when compared with the music of the rest of the opera, which is at such pains to characterize every person and situation in detail, the music of the magic flute is disarmingly cool and aloof. This coolness pervades the only other moment when we hear the magic flute. At the beginning of Act Two, as Tamino and Papagino prepare to undergo their trials, they are warned by the priest to remain silent and not to speak to anyone, especially women. The gods require a holy vow of silence from you two. Prince, if you do not accept it, you are both lost. You will see Pamina, but you are never allowed to speak to her. But what exactly counts as speaking, and thus as breaking the vow of silence, is unclear, a situation Papagino attempts to exploit. In response to Tamino's repeated hushing, he reasons, I certainly must be allowed to talk to myself, and the two of us can speak to each other. We are men, after all. After a final hushing, Papagino begins instead to sing. His reasoning is as absurd as it is persuasive. Speaking, he assumes, necessarily occurs between two people. Otherwise, it does not count as speech, and so does not violate the priest's prohibition. Thus, talking to oneself, since it only involves one person, is perfectly permissible. He seizes, moreover, on the emphasis the priest put on speaking with women to suggest that he and Tamino, as men, are permitted to converse. Finally, failing all that, singing, since it is distant from speech, must, he concludes, be allowed. On this last point, Papagino's reasoning appears to match Tamino's. Music seems to be the exception to the vow of silence. When the three boys return the magic instruments to Tamino and Papagino, Tamino immediately begins to play the magic flute. Exactly what the flute should play is not indicated in any of the surviving primary sources. In most performances, it plays the beginning of its piece from the finale of Act 1. Just as it drew forth and enchanted the animals of the forest in Act 1, here it draws forth Pamina, who comes searching for Tamino after hearing his flute. His refusal to engage with her prompts her heartbroken aria, Ach ich fühls, and eventually her suicide attempt. The flute, in other words, lures Pamina to Tamino, then deceives her by causing her to confront Tamino's silence and his coolness towards her entreaties. The promise of the sound of the flute is, this time, unfulfilled, if not directly contradicted. It is hard to accept that this is the instrument that in Act 1 was lauded for increasing human happiness and contentment. Here, it is an instrument of disappointment, even deceit. Pamina does not want to be serenaded. She wants confirmation of Tamino's continued interest in her. She wants him to speak to her. The power of the flute is no substitute for the power of speech. Tamino's silence is for Pamina, mers al krankug, mers al tat. The silence is a fate worse than sickness and death. Thus, death, as she sings in her aria, would be a welcome repose in comparison. The trials through fire and water prove that, in the face of death, the flute has power. It allows the protagonists to survive. In the face of the Brotherhood's laws of silence, however, it is powerless. It cannot compensate for the voice that Pamina so desperately wants to hear instead. The Flute Player Every entrance of the flute, in fact, is characterized by this double condition of enchanted power and disenchanted powerlessness in the face of an experience that otherwise resists articulation in speech or song. On the one hand, the music of the flute substitutes for what words seem unable to express. On the other hand, the flute's music fails in each instant to capture the depth and gravity of the situation at hand. What it offers instead are highly stylized set pieces. This is not to say that the flute's music is bad, only that it fits badly. 
as if the failure were deliberate. That is to say, its supposedly magical music is entirely disenchanted, as if this were precisely the point. Indeed, for an opera that revolves around an enchanted other world, and that has been described as a fairy tale, the music of the magic flute, because it references forms and genres that have an easily recognizable social function and significance, is remarkably anchored to our mundane world. This, more than any ultimate message on social equality, may be the reason for the opera's continued popularity and accessibility. Subotnik is right that the opera is permeated with social content, but this content, as she acknowledges in the second half of her article, may betray rather than support the promise of egalitarianism she sees in it. In order to get across any such egalitarian message, the opera must first establish differences between its social classes, and nowhere does this happen more effectively than in the music. Music denotes the character's social standing and sets them apart from each other. Papagino, as the serf in the queen's feudal kingdom, sings simple, strophic songs, while the queen expresses herself in a high style that belongs to, even as it mocks, opera seria. Tamino and Pamina sing sincere, self-important, and sentimental arias that mark them as the opera's bourgeois protagonist. Most notably, the priests in Sarastro's Brotherhood sing Protestant-like hymns, so that even if we wanted to see an alternative political utopia beyond the doors of the Temple of Wisdom, the music prevents us from hearing one, a subtle reminder of the Enlightenment's indebtedness to the religious roots it attempted to sever. The world we see on stage, no matter how foreign it is made by a fantastical staging, is the mundane one we inhabit. The more fantastical the staging, in fact, the more vivid, jarring, and we might even say real, is its representation of our mundane world. In other words, the more a staging of the opera attempts to ignore its embeddedness in a particular historical and social reality, the more deeply it embeds the opera in that reality. Which is perhaps why Ingmar Bergman's very human version, with its laughable beast at the beginning, a beast that is impossible to view as anything other than a person in a dragon costume, succeeds more than any other staging in presenting another world. It succeeds because it does not shy away from presenting this world, which is also why reading the opera is so difficult. The more we read it as a fairy tale, the more its everydayness becomes audible and vice versa. Finally, the more we read it as an allegory of enlightenment, the more it sounds like a fairy tale. This combination of magic and enlightenment, enchantment and disenchantment, is for Frankfurt School theorist Theodore Adomo a hallmark of bourgeois opera. It would be appropriate to consider opera as the specifically bourgeois genre, which in the midst and with the means of a world bereft of magic, paradoxically endeavors to preserve the magical element of art. By the magical element of art, Adorno means not only art's potential subject matter, as in the magic flute, but also the talisman-like quality of art itself. A relic from ancient times when art objects were thought to have magical powers and were worshipped as embodiments of the divine. Bourgeois opera, of which the magic flute is for Adorno a paradigmatic example, struggles both to preserve magic and to transform it into something an enlightened age can believe in. The struggle of opera reflects the struggle of the bourgeoisie itself to come to terms with an enlightened world, bereft of the magic, because it finds magic nowhere else in the world. The bourgeoisie clings to it in art. 
At the same time, however, the bourgeoisie is puzzled by the magic subject matter it finds in operas like the Magic Flute, which may, according to Adorno, seem more appropriate for children because they embarrass the adult who imagines himself too sensible for them. The question thus arises whether, in our post-Enlightenment age, we know what to make of the magical element of art. How do we understand an enchanted object in a disenchanted world? Can we understand it without seeking to produce it to its rationalized other? With these questions in mind, I would like to return to the magic flute. I suggested earlier that the music of the magic flute is deliberately disenchanted, as if the flute is unaware of the strength of its magical powers, as if the opera is trying to keep the flute within certain bounds so that it does not threaten the opera's enlightened vision of society, as if, in other words, this opera doesn't know what to do with its magic flute. This is a flute that no one owns, it exists in the void left by a rationalism that has negated faith in the unknown and the inexplicable. The magic flute thus suffers from a double crisis of faith. On the one hand, it cannot believe in a world where magic has agency. On the other hand, it cannot believe in a world where magic doesn't exist. As such, it cannot own its own magic flute. The question, whose magic flute, is only answerable from the perspective of a reconciled world, a utopia. As long as human consciousness remains split between the need to explain the world rationally and the desire to be amazed in spite of everything else, whose magic flute will remain an insoluble dilemma. Its unanswerability is nevertheless crucial. It speaks not only to the divided consciousness of the magic flute, but also to the dual role of music in the historical shift from Enlightenment to German Romanticism. Music in German Romanticism rushed to fill the gap left by Enlightenment's crisis of faith. It represented the possibility of a beyond, something exceeding the bounds of discourse and philosophy. Like the magic flute, it stood in for what otherwise could not be expressed in language. But this position of power was, just as in the case of the flute, also a position of powerlessness, which threatened to sever any possibility of music's engagement with this world, its ability to speak to the situation at hand. The potential insolubility of whose magic flute however, need not deter further attempts to address it. I concur, after all, with Subotnik that the magic flute has become our own, the same, I would argue, is true of the magic flute, if, that is, we are willing to accept it, to claim it as our own. As critics, we must step into the void left by the opera's refusal of its flute. Once we take the burden of ownership upon ourselves, the relevant question shifts. How do we, as critics, recognize ourselves as flute players? the flute player, and the critic. In answering this question, I suggest we take our cue from Plato's Symposium, which explores the same constellation of concepts as does the magic flute. Love and its relationship to wisdom, truth, beauty, and the good. This exploration takes the form of a series of eulogies to the concept of love delivered by a group of well-known and wise Athenian men. Their ideal of intellectual brotherhood is reflected centuries later in the Masonic societies formed throughout Europe during the Enlightenment that serve as a model for Sarastro's brotherhood in the Magic Flute. Music appears at first to play a little role in the symposium. At the beginning, the men banish the flute playing courtesan for their evening of serious discussion. Music turns out, however, to be crucial. At the end of the symposium, the flute playing courtesan returns, supporting the drunken Alcibiades who confronts his teacher and lover, Socrates, with the question, and aren't you a flute player? It is by no means simply a rhetorical question, nor is the answer as straightforward to answer as we might expect. 
For, as Alcibiades goes on to explain, a flute player does not necessarily need a flute to enchant listeners. He produces, with words alone, the same spellbinding effect on his audience that the mythical flute-playing satyr Marcius, teacher to the gods, produced with his instrument. His words of wisdom are a means of enchantment, his promise of knowledge a form of seduction. Alcibiades' question as to whether Socrates is, in fact, such a flute player, is therefore both a revelation and a recrimination. Not only Socrates' character, but also, by extension, his entire philosophical method stand accused. What seems to be a rhetorical question, tacked on as an afterthought, much like Alcibiades' belated and drunken arrival to the otherwise sober philosophical evening, turns out to be the central dilemma of the symposium, the dependence of reason on enchantment, of philosophy on myth. The flute player blurs the distinction between these categories. The true flute player, therefore, knows no distinction between reason and enchantment. She uses the one as the instrument of the other. More important, she doesn't even need a flute. She is thus unrecognizable as a flute player. Indeed, she derives her power from this position of anonymity. She works her magic before anyone realizes that she has cast a spell. She pursues truth via deception. Ever since Alcibiades exposed Socrates, however, the critical position of flute player has been divided again itself. Musician and philosopher, courtesan and thinker, in revealing these positions to be identical, Alcibiades secured their non-identity. Once we know that the flute player is a philosopher, her music is no longer as enchanting. Once we know the philosopher is a flute player, her wisdom is no longer as compelling. Enlightenment philosophy urged us to separate wisdom from enchantment, lest the latter contaminate the former with irrational pleasure. Nineteenth-century aesthetic theory urged us to separate music from reason, lest the latter interfere with the disinterested pleasure of the former. To occupy the position of flute player today is to attempt to erase the aporia forged by centuries of Western philosophic thought. As critics of the magic flute, we are called upon to occupy the position of flute player. We strive to speak from within the opera, to approximate its music, in other words, to enchant. Only via enchantment can we do justice to the opera's power, its magic. But lest we expose ourselves as enchantresses and demystify our magic, we must adopt the voice of reason of the philosopher. To approach the magic flute as a flute player, therefore, is to approach it from the perspective of one who is trying to erase the distinction between music and philosophy. For more so, perhaps than any other opera, the magic flute aims to be philosophy, which explains the richness of the philosophical interpretations it has evoked, as well as its continued appeal to writers and thinkers, from Goethe, Hegel, and Kierkegaard, to Auden, Starobinsky, and Sade. The magic flute, moreover, aims not for any ordinary philosophy, but for an originary philosophy of the kind practiced by Socrates in the symposium, a philosophy that aims to be music. Its failure to be such a philosophy is evident in its attitude towards its magic flute. The truth of the magic flute is also its greatest deception. The magic flute is not identical with the magic flute. The difference between the two, their non-identity, ensures that whose magic flute, as well as, and aren't you a flute player, will always remain more than rhetorical questions, and that the critic will always have a role as a flute player. Well, that one's pretty deep. Even as I'm reading it and as I read it, I'm going to have to go back and reread it again. Pretty intense, but uh, I hope you enjoyed these uh, 
critique and explanation of The Magic Flute by Mozart, or I should say by Brother Mozart. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.